Thanks, Jill. Let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So from the very first time I saw this, I knew that one day I was going to emulate that shot. (laughs) I spent the first 10 years of my life in Massachusetts. My very first memories, uh, this is honest, were of coming downstairs late at night to ask my dad to please stop screaming at the TV while watching a Boston Celtics playoff game. Uh, In New England in the 1980s, there weren't a ton of uh, options other than Larry Bird for your favorite player. It had to be Larry Bird. He was quite simply the most interesting basketball player that anyone had ever seen. He's still the most interesting basketball player I've ever seen. He had um, very average athleticism. Uh, He looked nothing like you would expect a professional athlete to look like. He openly just said, yeah, I'm a hick that happens to play basketball. I'm from French Lick, Indiana. But he compensated for this lack of athleticism and maybe star power by being the smartest player on the court at all times. Infinitely resourceful. I watched him do touch passes and play incredible defense and routinely make shots that would make your jaw drop. And the one that I've shown you this morning is probably my all-time favorite. I did try numerous times throughout my not-so-illustrious basketball playing career to recreate this shot in real time and uh, to very little success, by the way. Usually if you try one of these shots in a game, a behind-the-basket shot, uh, your coach is going to pull you and put you on the bench for the rest of the game and say, what are you doing? Well, when I was 15, I had my golden opportunity. It came to me. I had my golden opportunity to recreate this shot that I dreamed about uh, since I was a little tiny boy. I was playing high school basketball game. There was a scrum under the basket. The ball kind of squirted free towards the baseline. I happened to be right there. There were only a couple seconds left in the quarter, so it made sense for me to just shoot it. And I tried the patented Larry Bird behind the basket shot. Unfortunately for me, me, I was a little bit overzealous. It hit one of the stanchions and did not go in, not really even close. But I remember walking back to the bench after that and going, shoot, that was probably my one chance in an actual game to make that shot. It's probably never going to happen again. I watched an inordinate amount of basketball as a child. I had lots of players that I tried to emulate, but no one more than Larry Bird and nothing more than this, uh, this miraculous shot. That behind the basket shot, if you want to put it that way, was kind of like my primary source material for my basketball career. And that's kind of what I want to talk about today, is primary source material. We've been using chapter one in the book of James for the past three weeks to get a sense of who James was and who he was writing to and what are some of the main themes that are concerning him. James, as we've talked about, was the half-brother of Jesus, leader of the Jerusalem church. 
but he preferred the title of bondservant of Christ above all other titles. James was writing to a highly persecuted and marginalized group of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and beyond. And one of the main themes that he had, which we've already talked about, is the reality of trials and tribulations that are going to come in this life and how a true relationship with Jesus Christ, the giver of all good gifts, the father of lights, because of that relationship, we could choose joy in the midst of our trials. Think about that, choosing joy in the midst of our trials. So as we finish this chapter one this morning, I thought it was a good opportunity to look at James's primary source material, understand how he applies this material to his life and his writing, and ask how we might do the same. So here's my, here's my working theory here. We all have source material that's kind of at the forefront of what we do. There's certain source material that you have that guides your life and your work, your parenting, your family life, the way that you choose to spend your time or the way that you choose to spend your money. I think we have source material that informs our faith as well. Whether it be our religious background or our experiences, maybe our hurts at times, our relationships with fellow Christians, and certainly our understanding of Scripture. So, what was James's primary source material? Kind of an interesting question. In even just chapter 1, James makes his sources painfully clear. We've already discussed that the book of James is actually a letter, which is technically true, but it doesn't really resemble a letter much at all. It doesn't follow the typical flow of a first century letter. In fact, the way that we read it, it actually reads a lot more like a piece of wisdom literature. Where we see wisdom literature the most is in the Old Testament, primarily the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And it's obvious to everyone who studies the book of James that that James is using the book of Proverbs as one of his primary sources. Now, some of you have read the book of Proverbs before. I, I find the book of Proverbs to be really, really interesting, but also super frustrating. It's okay to admit that sometimes, that the Bible can be frustrating. And my guess is that if you've read the book of Proverbs, you maybe feel the same way. There are several themes in the book of Proverbs, like wisdom versus folly, or the rich versus the poor, or the young versus the old, and, and and it's a collection of sayings that are meant to lead us towards wisdom in different areas of, uh, of our life and stages of our life. It's an interesting book because there's lots of wonderful wisdom. There's lots of really great sayings that we can sort of latch onto and live into. But it's an immensely frustrating book, at least for me, because oftentimes it seems like one verse has nothing to do with the next verse, which had nothing to do with the verse that came before it. And it doesn't seem like there's much of a context that pulls it together. What's really happening is that uh, there's a fairly advanced form of rhetoric happening in the book of Proverbs that we just don't really understand super well in the 21st century. But those who are frustrated with the book of James, and there have been a lot throughout history who have been frustrated with the book of James, this is usually one of the reasons why they're frustrated. It's the same reason. It feels like there's a bunch of nice sayings, like a bunch of little teachings that are not like obviously related to one another in, in really clear ways. While there are seven major topics in James... You can see them here, patience, wisdom, there's quite a bit on the rich and the poor, there's the tongue, which, we're, which is part of our, our, our topic today, prayer, sickness and sin, and faith and works. And you can even see there, James is jumping around between these themes, isn't he, throughout his book. These are also, all of these, are prominent themes in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. 
The vigorous and fresh writing style of James is, is pretty similar to Proverbs. He uses short, vivid sentences like Proverbs. He's fond of making comparisons with nature, like waves and sun and flowers and planets and animals, to give his teaching sort of concrete expression. Proverbs does the same thing. He asks his readers like short, penetrating questions that cause them to reflect, just like the book of Proverbs. All of these literary devices that James uses uh, are, are very similar to Proverbs. And more than just being helpful for us in understanding James' source material, I think it's helpful for us to go, what is the book of Proverbs really all about? Well, the book of Proverbs is about wisdom for living a moral life, for living a good life. These are not just pithy sayings that are meant to be quotable. They're meant to influence our, our moral life, our actions. James's goal in his letter is very much the same. Wisdom so that we might live a, a good, upstanding moral life. So that's one piece of, of primary source that James is using. There's another one that I think is even more interesting. The closest parallel to James in the New Testament is actually in Matthew 5 through 7, in Luke 6, and in Luke, in Luke 11, which are the Sermon on the Mount. The following chart that I have here shows you the parallels just in chapter 1 between James and the Sermon on the Mount. And you can see that every section of James in chapter 1 and in all chapters of James, there's an echo in every single one of them to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The similarities are so numerous that some people actually think that James's letter is really a commentary on Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. So if the sermon is really about wisdom from Jesus, then James is taking these teachings and he's, and he's, uh, he's presenting it in a fresh new way for a new generation. Some of, the, some of the parallels with the sermon are really, really clear, near verbatim quotations. Some are clear references, and then some are more kind of vague allusions. But the recognition that James is intentionally taking the teachings of Jesus and, and putting them into the situation that he's facing, at least for me, increases my appreciation for him as an author and why he's doing what he's doing. As we'll see below, James is not a legalist, but rather one who is serving the church by calling it back to be the community that Jesus intended for it to be. A faith that is meant to lead them towards a righteous, morally upright life that changes the world. I find it extremely helpful to understand James's primary source material as the book of Proverbs and then Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. It helps me to understand the heart behind his letter. These two sources are really like ideal sources to begin a conversation about how it is that we're supposed to live as children of God and as followers of Jesus. And this is exactly what James does at the end of chapter 1, our verses for today. So with that source material in mind, Proverbs, Sermon on the Mount, I want to take a look at the key verses in the middle of this passage. This passage, which was read for us, is actually kind of in three parts. In a lot like the book of Proverbs, it seems to sort of skip around from one truth to the other without a ton of connection. But, but as we look at the structure, James is actually pretty intentional about this. He's trying to do something pretty intentional. He's just finished a section on how trials can lead us to a more mature and wise faith. And then in verses 19 through 21, he talks about our words, our tongue, the words that we choose to use. And then in those key verses, 22 through 25, he jumps to the image of, of God's word as a mirror that we peer into. And then in verses 26 through 27, he goes back 
to the tongue. He goes back to our words and how they can keep us from the pure religion that, that, that was intended for us. So what seems disjointed is actually an interesting rhetorical technique for James. Uh, you give an example, and then you explain why that example makes sense, and then you come back to the example and you drive it home. It's sort of like what we do every Sunday when we preach a sermon. So that middle section, verses 22 through 25, they're key because they modify the truth about the taming of the tongue. So let's look more closely at those verses. I want to read them again. But be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves, For if any are hearers of the word and they're not doers, they're like those who look at themselves in a mirror. For they look at themselves and on going away, immediately forget what they they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. So what does this passage mean? Remember, when we talk about being a hearer of God's word, that there was no such thing as the New Testament in written form when James was writing. And while there would have been Old Testament scrolls available in the temples and the synagogues, most of the Old Testament would have been passed down orally. James was part of an oral tradition. So we know that James's primary sources were the book of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount, but they weren't source material in the way that we think about them, like underlying passages in our Bible or Uh, verses that we printed out and put in a visible place in our house. No, they were oral tradition. They were spoken over and over again in the home and in the family and in the church, and they were recited. And apparently, that oral tradition, especially of those two sources, made a great impression on James. Here's where I'm going to make the connection here. That oral tradition is sort of like that Larry Bird shot. Okay, hang with me. My brother and I saw that shot, that behind-the-basket shot, on a nightly news highlight reel. We didn't see it in real time. We just saw it on the nightly news. This was well before YouTube. I didn't have it on VHS at the time where I could you know, rewind and then watch it over and over again. Um, but that shot lived on because of our memories of it. Because my brother and I were so infatuated with it that we began to relive and reenact that shot all the time. We practiced that shot over and over again Uh, just from watching that one highlight video one time. It lived in infamy, and its its legend grew stronger because we kept it alive in our backyard and in our driveway and in any gym we happened to be in. It's something that we lived, we enacted, in hopes that we might be able to use it someday. Well, I can imagine that James heard Proverbs, heard the Sermon on the Mount, as part of that oral tradition, and he kept it alive by reciting it and passing it on to others and practicing it in his life. And here's the point of the image that he uses in this text. We we desperately need to live in perpetual remembrance of the image that we see when we peer into the mirror of God's word. We need to treat God's word as primary source material, material that we hear or we read, and then we make it our life's goal to put it into action. If we don't do so, it's like looking in the mirror and seeing something and then immediately forgetting what we saw. We can listen to scripture. That's pretty easy, like hear the actual words. It's more difficult to listen well because only, the only way that we can prove that we're listening to God's word well is to actually live like we remember the image that we saw in that mirror. And here's the beauty of it. 
James is actually modeling this for us in real time as he's writing this, which I think is so cool. He's taking a few key sections of God's word that, that have been reflected towards him, that have made a big impression on him, and he's being obedient to them. He's being obedient to the call of Proverbs and the Sermon on the Mount of this, of this upright, wise, and moral life. He's allowing that source material to lead him to an obedience to Christ and the good works of taming the tongue in verses 19 through 21 or the markers of true religion in verses 26 and 27, chiefly the care of orphans and widows and a righteous life that's unstained by the world. So as we move further into the book of James, you're going to see this source material come to the forefront and you're going to continue to see James be faithful to it, which I think is really cool to witness. But more than just being an interesting study, more than just understanding James a little bit better, this text does speak to us. So I have a few questions for us to take away today as we reflect on the words of this passage. My first question is this. What is your primary source material for your faith? You may notice that James didn't say, when you look at your church, it's like a mirror. Or when you look at your Christian friends, it's like a mirror. Or when you look at your religious background, it's like a mirror. No, He says, when we peer into God's word, it's like a mirror. What scriptures are you living with and referring to often, continuing to come back to and seeking to enact in your life? If you can't think of any, James actually gives us a pretty good place to start. The book of Proverbs is pretty good, and I really can't think of any better place to start than Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. These would be great scriptures to live into and and enact in each and every day. Second question I have is, is the source material for your faith life leading you to a further obedience in Christ, or is it not? (laughs) James uses the example, it's just an example, one example of many that he could have used about the tongue, the words that we use, the taming of the tongue. Is the source material that you're living with in your life that you're trying to enact, is it, is it causing holy speech to come out of your mouth? It's just an example. Or, or are the words that are coming out of your mouth angry words or biting words or crude words or disparaging ones? If so, I think the call of this passage is you need to lean further into God's word so that you can remember it and live by it and have it change you. Which brings me to the final question for us from this passage. What do you see when you look into God's word? What's reflected back at you? I think James was leaning into Proverbs, Sermon on the Mount, because when he peered into those texts, he saw God and his perfect son, Jesus Christ, and he felt a balance between two things. He felt encouragement when he looked at these words, excitement and encouragement, but what did he also feel? He felt challenged felt challenged by those words. My friends, I I pray that you might lean into such source material, God's word that tells you how loved you are and how sufficient his grace is for you and how treasured you are as a child of God, but that that source material might at the very same time challenge you deeply to enact his word in your life and to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God in every way that strives to live up to the standard that is set before us in the person of Jesus Christ. I was never able to live up to Larry Bird's standards on the basketball court. I still think I've got a couple years left in me, so we'll see what happens. 
But we will never live up to Jesus' standard, and that's okay, too. The difference between the two, of course, is that God takes great delight in us giving our very lives to try. Peering into his word, remembering the image that was reflected back to us. So may you be encouraged and challenged as you peer into God's word. And may you live in such a way that you would not be merely a hearer of God's word, but indeed a doer, a doer of God's word. Let's pray. Lord, would you open our ears so that we might listen well? Not merely just hearing the words that you speak to us through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, but showing, Lord, that we are indeed listening well by the way in which we live our lives. Lord, would you give us the courage to not merely just hear your word, but to be doers of your word. Lord, I thank you for the gift of scripture, the way in which it serves as a mirror that reflects your truth to us. Would you call us back to it so that we might peer into it, see your truth, enact that truth in our lives, and so give you glory, we pray. Amen.